Today I'm going to talk to you about a mindset to build. A mindset to build. To build the kingdom. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4, but before we get to Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to lay a little bit of, of a foundation uh, before we get there. In Nehemiah um, chapter 4, of course the book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah who, who came back um, with the third wave of captives. So you have, you have Ezra, you have Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. These three guys were the three leaders that were responsible in terms of their leadership of rebuilding the temple the city of Jerusalem, and the wall around Jerusalem. And so, when you read, for instance, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah Jeremiah prophesied his ministry, he prophesied, he says in his own writing, he prophesied for 23 years, warning the children of Judah, the children of Israel, the people of Judah, of the impending judgment that was coming. Before it came, they... They would not listen to him, and so part of the book of Jeremiah is, deals with, with this impending judgment, and, and, um, and then it goes into where the judgment has come, and the Babylonians have carried away the children of Israel captive, and he's writing to them. And so they were, they were taken to Babylon and held captive for 70 years. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah chronicles what happened when the, the 70 years were up and a decree went forth by Cyrus, the Persian king, to let the children of Israel go back and rebuild the temple. The temple. And the first wave of exiles that went back went back with Zerubbabel and he rebuilt the temple. Then Ezra takes a wave of exiles back and Ezra's book is primarily about the spiritual condition of the people. And we get to Nehemiah, he's leading the third wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And they are attempting to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Now, that's where we're going to pick up when we get to Nehemiah chapter 4. But before we go there, I want to take you to the book of, the book of Galatians. Because we're going to talk about rebuilding the the wall around Jerusalem, but we're not talking about just building a wall. We need to understand what these things mean and what they represent. And so in Galatians chapter 4, let's begin in verse 22. Galatians 4.22, for, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, that one by a bondwoman the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So this is talking about Ishmael, who was the child born according uh, to the flesh. He was, his mother was Hagar, the servant, the maidservant of Sarah. And so Abraham had a child with Hagar because Sarah couldn't conceive a child. This is the child born according to the flesh. And he had one of the free woman. This is his wife, Sarah. And, I, and this is um, his son, Isaac, who was the son of promise. Verse 24, which things are symbolic. So there really was two children born. There were two real children. There was really a woman named Hagar. There was really a woman named Sarah. There was a man named Abraham. They really had two children, but Paul says these children are symbolic of something. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. He's talking about the law. The law of Moses, the law that the children of Israel were under. For this is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, Hagar really isn't Mount Sinai. She, the woman really isn't a mountain, and the mountain isn't really a woman. So you understand Paul is speaking symbolically, okay? 
People say, I believe the Bible literally. Well, you believe Hagar's a mountain in Arabia then. No, no, okay. Then we've got to read things in their proper context and understand what, what's being communicated. So Paul is pretty clear here. He's given us the commentary of what the Old Testament scriptures are communicating to us here. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem. This is real important, which now is. Which now is. So this tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us we know when Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it before 70 AD because Jerusalem still is. And, and the destruction hasn't happened. The temple hadn't been destroyed and, and they hadn't been carried away captive again. This response corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So Paul is talking about two women. He's talking about two Jerusalems. And he's talking symbolically. There's a Jerusalem, which now is, he says, which is in bondage with their children. This represented the Jews who had rejected their Messiah, who were still clinging to the law of Moses as their system of righteousness, the old sacrificial system, which Christ put away, but has not been put away yet because the temple and the city hasn't been destroyed. So you have Jews still sacrificing in the temple, and the apostles and the church preaching the gospel, and you got the Jews hanging on to this sacrificial system, and Paul says, hey man, this thing is bondage. This Jerusalem, which now is, her children are in bondage, but the Jerusalem above is free. She represents the child of promise. She represents the promise. So you see, Paul is talking symbolically here. Now let's go to Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, or let's say verse 8. Hebrews eleven eight. 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's faith, right? Honey, what's that U-Haul in the driveway? Well, babe, we are packing up and we're, we're moving. Well, where are we going? Well, I don't know where we're going, but we're, we're going. Now, that would take real faith, wouldn't it? That's kind of what Abraham did. I don't advise that, by the way, okay? Unless, unless you know you've really heard from God. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 10, for he waited for the city, not a city, the city. Definite article here. He wasn't just waiting for, well, first city we come to, guys, that's where we're going to live. No, it's not a city, it's the city. He, he had a city envisioned. What, what was unique about this city? He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is a very specific place Abraham is waiting for. Jesus alludes to this in John 8 when Jesus says to the Pharisees, Abraham, your father. They said, where of our father Abraham? He said, no, you're of your father the devil. They didn't like that. He said, Abraham saw me in my day and rejoiced. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham see you? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Well, man, that is... That, that, there's all kinds of things. They ripped their clothes. They, they went to stone him because he had uttered the unspeakable name of God. And he just called himself God right there. They knew it. And we read that today and we don't really get it. But trust me, people say Jesus never said he was God. Now, he said it very clearly. And this is why the Jews, the Pharisees, were so determined to kill him. They really believed he was blasphemous. But he says, Abraham saw me in my day, and he rejoiced. Well, Abraham saw a city. What is unique about this city? A city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Remember, Paul speaks of two cities, the Jerusalem, which is now in bondage, 
and the Jerusalem which is above, which is free. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Let's begin in verse 9, Revelation 21, 9. By the way, both of those cities Paul talks about in Galatians are real cities. But just like Hagar and Sarah were real women, real mothers, and they were symbolic of something, these two cities are also symbolic of something. Revelation 21.9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Well, that should clue us in right there, what he's talking about. We could go to Ephesians 5. Paul talks about, I I speak in a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church when he's talking about husbands and wives, and that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This is the city Paul referred to in Galatians, where he says, the Jerusalem above is free. Who is this Jerusalem? It's the bride. It's the lamb's wife. Now, you've heard me say this before. Jesus is not marrying a city. But this city is representative of what? It's representative of his people. He is marrying his people. We are, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And that son of promise, Isaac, represented the people of promise. As Paul said, he represents the Jerusalem which is above and is free. This great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, and having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, and I want you to pay attention, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, the wall of the city had twelve foundations. What did Abraham wait for? He waited for the city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham, by faith, saw the church. He saw the glorious people of God. He saw the redeemed of the Lord, those who had been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, who had been washed white, washed clean. He saw the bride of the Lamb in all of the glory of her resurrected life, the life of Christ. Now, I believe he really saw a city too. But the reason he was able to take his son Isaac up to that mountain and plunge that knife. You know Abraham had the angel not stopped Abraham. Abraham would have plunged that knife into the heart of Isaac. And he was willing to do that because he had already seen the promise fulfilled. And we know that by what he told his servants. He said, me and the boy will go and worship and we will return. It says that in Genesis Hebrews gives us commentary on that. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham had already counted his son dead. His son had already come from the dead because he was dead. His wife was dead, so to speak. They were, he was 100 years old. She was 90 years old. There was no natural way they should have had children. So when that son was born through the womb of Sarah... Abraham knew that God had raised his son up from the dead, so to speak. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. So going and taking Isaac up on that mountain and obeying God, Abraham had already seen by faith the promise. He'd already seen the city with foundations. He'd already seen the resurrected Christ. Jesus said, Abraham saw me in my day, and he rejoiced. He'd already seen the resurrected Christ. He'd already seen the glorious bride of the Lamb. He knew that God would not allow his son Isaac to be killed. Well, you raised him up from the dead once, God. If you 
you're commanding me to do this, then I trust you're going to raise him up again. Me and the boy, we will come back. We're going to go worship God. Well, you know the story. God didn't allow Abraham to kill his son, but we see the faith of Abraham. And so we see the faith of Abraham as he waited for a city with foundations. John is now in his vision seeing this city that Paul referred to as the Jerusalem above, which is free, which... Abraham saw by faith, he's seeing this city descend from heaven, the bride of the lamb, the bride, the lamb's wife. In this city, he says, has a great and high wall, and this city has 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Why? Because those 12 apostles of the lamb, those were the foundations of the of the New Testament church, of the New Covenant church, the church bought by the blood of the Lamb. It speaks of that work, that work of Christ. It speaks of the church that Jesus birthed, that Abraham saw, that Abraham saw by faith, and Abraham knew was coming. Now let me, hang with me. Now let's go, let's go to 1 Peter, and we're going to get to Nehemiah. Let's go to 1 Peter. Let's see, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Now, when we get to Nehemiah, we're going to see that when God told Abraham to leave his homeland and go, and he sojourned in this land of promise, and he waited for the city, Jerusalem was not the city of God's people. It wasn't until David took Jerusalem away from the Jebusites. So Jerusalem as a city was there. There were a people very possibly, more than likely, inhabiting that area that we would now call Jerusalem. But it was David, many, many, many centuries after Abraham, it wasn't until David came that that city was taken, and it became, you might say, the capital city of God's people. Even during Moses and the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And so God ordained that this city be And God ordained after the captivity, after they were taken out of that city as a judgment by the Babylonians, held captive for 70 years, then God, after 70 years of captivity, sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, because God ordained that Jerusalem and that temple would be rebuilt. And what did God use to rebuild that city? He used men to rebuild it, right? He used men who were willing to work. And so, when we talk about these things, what I want you to understand is that that God has graced us to be part of something that really is beyond our imagination. Have you guys ever read, uh, I don't know if you like to read fiction, or, um, I, I, you know, I, probably my favorite all-time books other than the Bible, uh, just for entertainment purposes, I, is the Lord of the Rings. I love Tolkien. I love fantasy. And I remember the first time I ever read Tolkien, I read the Lord of the Rings. I wasn't saved. I had no spiritual concept of anything. They, and I can remember reading. Have you ever read a book, and you read a book, and you, just, you think, man, I wish, I wish I could live that, or I wish I could experience that. You know, man, wouldn't it be something if, if I could be part of a grand adventure like that? I'm telling you what. We are part of the grandest adventure you could ever imagine. That is true. Whether you believe it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not, I'm telling you, you are part of the greatest, grandest adventure you could ever possibly imagine. It is so grand and so great, it's beyond our comprehension. We only catch glimpses of it. And I pray that we would become hungry for a greater glimpse 
and a greater revelation of exactly of what exactly God has brought us into and made us a part of when he created us and especially when he saved us and made us his people but look here in 1 Peter verse 10 chapter 1 verse 10 of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Peter is, this is 2,000 years ago, Peter's writing this letter, and he's telling the people then, remember the Bible's not written to you, but it's written for you. Peter didn't write this letter to us, but he wrote this letter for us. And the same truth that, that was written to and for those people is for us today. And he says, the prophets of old who prophesied, who wrote of and spoke of this great salvation, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. He said, hey guys, They weren't writing it for them. They were writing it for you. You are the ones who have were here when Christ came, when Christ suffered, when Christ died. Those prophets of old didn't write it for themselves. They could only see it from afar. It's like Abraham. He only could see the city with foundations from afar. But he saw it and he knew it was real and the promise and the reality of it was so real to him that he would not live in a city. He dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob because he waited for the city with foundations. The prophets wrote, Peter says, of those things of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, look at this, to the prophets it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Think about that for a moment. What God has made you a part of, the Bible says the angels desire to look into it. They just want to find out, what is this all about? I wonder sometimes what the angels must think. The angels who have seen God, who are created beings themselves. How long they've been here, who knows. They've witnessed far more than we have. They've witnessed the whole story of redemption. These angels, created by the Son of God, witnessed their very Creator, Die on a cross. For who? For a race of people, for the human race that rejected him, that despised him. It's an enigma to the angels. They don't understand it. But do you realize what a privilege it is for us? What a privilege it is for us to be called the children of God. Do you realize what God has made you a part of by His grace? So, when we talk about, let's go to Nehemiah. When we talk about a city, when we look at this real story, this real history, of a real people who at the decree of a real king 
went back to rebuild a real city. The question for us is, what is the significance? See, if we don't, the reason I took you to all those other places before we came to Nehemiah is because this isn't just about you getting motivated to do God's work. The point of this is not to to motivate you to get out there and work hard for Jesus. It's that we would begin to understand that we have been made a part of something so much greater and so much grander than ourselves. Something so great and so grand, it, it, it spans all eternity. It doesn't just span all of human history. It spans all of eternity. Because this is the story of God. This is the story of Christ. This is about our Redeemer. This is about our Creator. Who has made you, according to the Word of God, His bride. His very own people by shedding his very own blood, by laying down his very own life and suffering the most humiliating death that could ever possibly be suffered. He did that. And in that graceful act of mercy and redemption, he has made you part of his eternal plan and part of his eternal purpose. So we're not just talking about a nice story to motivate us to go out and work harder for Jesus. I'm saying when we read, for instance, Nehemiah chapter 4, and we begin to read the account here that Nehemiah recorded, Let's begin in verse 4. I want you to think about what these stones represent. I want you to think about what this wall represents. I want you to think about what this city represents. I want you to think about what the temple represents. I want you to think about what all of these real things are speaking to us. Because they are speaking to us. Nehemiah 4, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Now you've got to understand, these, these guys have come back from captivity. I mean, the Babylonians came in two times. 606, they came and they took, this is when Daniel and those guys were taken captive. They came back in 586 because the Jews basically rebelled. Jeremiah tried to get them, said, look, if you guys will just, if you guys will just submit to the Babylonians, God has done this, this is God's doing. If you'll just submit to their, to their authority, everything's going to be okay. But if you keep rebelling, They're going to destroy the city. They're going to destroy the temple. This is what what Jeremiah is writing about. This is what Ezekiel is writing about. And sure enough, 586, 20 years later, here come the Babylonians back a second time, and they, they lay the city waste. They destroy Solomon's temple. They decimate everything. It stays that way. Now, for 70 years, everything's in ruin and rubble. They're coming back. Here's the third wave. They're trying to rebuild a wall. These feeble Jews, these people that have been carried away captive, who can't learn their lesson, and they're being mocked by the Samaritans.
And he spoke before the brethren in the army of Samaria. He said, what, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Do you see, do you see that's a picture of us? The Bible says, Paul writes this to the Ephesians, he said, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with powers and principalities, rulers of darkness and high places. And when Peter wrote and he said, the angels desire to look into this salvation. You know, there's, there's two kinds of angels. There are good angels and there's bad angels. There's fallen angels. See in the Old Testament scriptures where it talks about a third of the host of heaven was was drawn away with Satan. So we we have fallen angels. We have an adversary, the scripture says, the devil who roams around seeking whom he may devour. The word devil, you know what the word devil, the word devil in Greek, you know what the literal meaning of, of devil is? Slanderer. That's what devil means. So, a slanderer is a devil, and the devil is a slanderer. That's what the Greek word for devil literally means, slanderer. And we see the slanderer, or the accuser of the brethren, we see him, for instance, in the book of Job, when he comes, when the, the day when the sons of God came before, the, uh, before the, 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 the Lord, before the throne. Have you considered my servant Job? What, is, what does the devil do? He begins to slander Job. Well, you know, he only serves you because you're so good to him. He only does this because. He only does this because. He'll fall in a moment if you just let me have a, have a try at him. Oh, okay. He's the accuser of the brethren. And you see here in this story of Nehemiah, here, are, here is Sanballat and the army of the Samaritans, and they're slandering God's people. This is what the enemy this is the way the enemy looks. This is what the enemy says about you. Look at these stones. Look, look what they say. Will they, will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? Do you know what our life was? What your life, what my life was before it was redeemed by Jesus Christ? It was like these stones here. Just rubbish. Just a heap of rubbish. And the angels look at the sons of God. They look at the people of redemption and they say, God, would you really raise up a people from this? God, would you really redeem these people? This humanity that is so rebellious? See, this is the grace of God. None of us were stones that deserve to be raised up. Peter said, you are lively, living stones being built up into a habitation of God. Who made me a living stone? Christ made me a living stone. What was I before I was a living stone? I was a stone in a rubble heap that looked like nothing could be done with it. So they're mocking. Are they going to Take these stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. He'll break down their stone wall. When we went to Ireland, we went to Trim Castle. It was the, if you ever saw the movie Braveheart, that's where they filmed uh, a lot of the scenes of Braveheart. And Trim Castle was the first Norman castle ever built in Ireland. And so the, the initial, the fortress, was kind of like a, a, a cross-shaped structure. It, it kind of like a square, and then it had a, a wing going off in each direction, north, south, east, and west. And on the north side is where they had the wing, and down, down below where they had the kitchens, and the big, um, 
you know, the big ovens where they cooked all the food and everything. And the castle was all intact except for the north wing. The north wing was gone. And the reason the north wing wasn't there is because, because they heated the castle, they cooked the food, they had the fires going all the time. The fire weakened the stone, weakened the mortar, and that became weakened because those stones were burned. And so, consequently, over time, it didn't last. But the rest of the castle was okay. So when they're talking about these stones that are burned, and he says, even if a fox climbs up on it, he'll break it down because they understood, hey, these, these stones are no good for anything. They've been burned with fire. They're just, they're not going to, they have no strength in them. Can't build with that kind of material. That's why the Bible says when we're in Christ, we become new creations. My heart was one way, cold heart of stone, Ezekiel says, but God in his grace and mercy will give me a new heart, a different heart, a new heart. When I was born again, when I was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, I'm not the old creation repaired. I'm the old creation crucified and I have become a new creation. Nehemiah and the people, they cry out to God. They say, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So these guys are just there taunting them, mocking them. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt. You know why? Because God ordained that it would be. Because God prophesied before it happened, they would go to captivity, they would come out of captivity. Everything that happened, God ordained it to happen. Now, Next week, we're going to get into the meat of this scripture in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to look at four things. It says in verse 9, it says, They built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. Why? For the people had a mind to work. There Opposers were still there, taunting them, conspiring against them, trying to stop the work. Verse 9 says, nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of the opposition I'm facing, in spite of everything that seems to be against me, in spite of the fact that it seems like we have nothing here that's of use, there's so much rubbish, there's so, so many heaps of rubbish, it, it seems as though this is an impossible task, we have All of this opposition against us, but what does it say? Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. So we see that the people had a mind to work. They had a mind to pray. Because of them, because of those that were coming against them, trying to stop the work, we set a watch against them day and night. They had a mind to watch. We're going to look at the scriptures that we're commanded that Jesus commands us to be watchful, to be vigilant. And there's a reason why we should be. And it goes down and it continues talking about how they're, they're going to conspire. They're going to come out of nowhere. They're going to kill them. They're going to, verse 11 says, we're going to come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so they kept telling them, of these things, and 
Nehemiah says in verse 13, Therefore I positioned men before the lower parts of the wall and the openings, and I set people according to their families. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders, verse 11, um, excuse me, verse 14, look at this. And I said to, to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. They had a mind to fight in the face of the opposition. Do you know that you have an enemy who is in opposition to you? And so whatever it is that you might be battling in your personal life, I mean, we corporately, corporately the church has an enemy. You understand that. This is why Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians 6, we, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Listen, the enemy... Satan, from the very beginning, his mission has not changed. I mean, the moment he came into that garden, his mission was to stop what God had ordained. And he lied to the people of God. He lied to the children there. He lied to Adam and Eve. And they believed the lie. But if Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of Jesus Christ is uttered. When God says, I'll put enmity between your seed, talking to the serpent, and the seed of the woman, and her seed, he said, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The seed that is coming. Abraham talked about a seed that's coming. Paul tells us what that seed was in Galatians 3. He said, whose seed is Christ? Christ is the promised seed. He always has been. And we see even from the very beginning in the garden, the enemy is trying to stop the promise from coming forth. He's trying to stop the work that God has ordained. What is the work that God has ordained for us to do today? We can sum it up by what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. Preach the gospel. Make known this Christ. Proclaim this salvation. And when we proclaim this salvation, do you know what we're doing? As we fulfill what God tells us to do, when we go and we make disciples, when we preach the gospel, when we see Men and women and children set free from the bondage of sin and death. Do you know what is taking place? God is building Jerusalem. That's what's taking place. Every person set free from sin and death is a lively stone that God has put in its place as he is building up Jerusalem. Well, not an earthly city. I'm talking about the city that Paul referred to, the the Jerusalem above, which is free, the one that's going to come down out of heaven one day. That is the bride, the Lamb's wife. It's not so much about the walls and the buildings. We get caught up in jasper stones and sardius and emeralds and ruby. Forget about all that. What's amazing is not, not that. That's not what's amazing. It's not the physical structure of the city that's amazing. What's amazing is what the city represents, who the city represents. What's amazing are the lively stones, the living stones. What's amazing are the lives that have been redeemed. What's amazing are the the stones that were burnt and, and useless that have been raised up out of the ruin and out of the heap of ashes and turned into beautiful, glorious, living stones that have become the bride the Lamb's wife. That's what's amazing. And we are tasked, we are called to build this city. We can read these accounts in the Scripture and just have nice motivational stories or we can read beyond that and we can see that God all along has had an eternal plan, an eternal purpose. 
And I'm telling you, Christian, sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now, you are part of that eternal plan and eternal purpose. And the fact that you're here is not an accident. The fact that you're on planet Earth right now for such a time as this is not an accident. It is part of the eternal and glorious purpose of God. You are a lively stone being built up into the habitation of God. I don't know exactly what your specific place and purpose may be in the city, in the wall, wherever you may find yourself, but you are being built up into a holy habitation. And you are such a wonder to the created order that the angels look at your life and they cannot figure out what God is doing They just know that God has taken a bunch of ruined and burnt stones from the ash heap and turned them into lively stones, and they, 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 they desire to look into it, but they cannot comprehend the salvation that you are a part of by the grace of God. Do you live with the wonder of that? Do you... Do you, do you sense the wonder of that? If you can begin to sense the wonder of that, it will change your life. You won't see your life as ordinary anymore. You won't see the things that, that happen in your life as just coincidences or accidents. You won't see the opposition that comes against your life as just bad luck. No, there's someone and something that's opposing you. But here's the good news. There is someone greater than your opposition. John writes, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And the same God that calls the plans and the schemes of the enemies of the children of Israel as they were trying to rebuild the wall, it says down in verse 15 that God made known their plans and God brought their plans to nothing. Matter of fact, God took their plans that were meant to stop the work of God and he actually used it for the good. Just like God promises that he'll take the things that are meant for bad in your life, and he'll work all things together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. My prayer, my plea to you is that you would begin to live in the wonder of who you are as a child of God. you would let the truth of this salvation that you have become a part of begin to stir in you and give you hope, give you an ability to look beyond, to go beyond, to endure the afflictions, the tribulations, the trials, the testings that may come your way, knowing that God is working in you a more eternal weight of glory, that he is producing something greater in you. You have a destiny greater than anything that's of this earth and of this temporal realm. Amen. Let's all stand. Come back next week and we're going to begin in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to talk about a mindset to build the kingdom. Just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father, I just pray right now. Lord, we're living in a time when so many people are going through so many trying things. Lord, our country's uh, being tried right now. Lord, people are suffering uh, financially, economically, suffering in their bodies with disease. Lord, there's conflict and, and things happening in every realm of our society and our culture, it seems. 
in homes, on the job. Father, I pray that, Lord, instead of allowing those things to consume us with worry and fear and stress, that, God, we would begin to see beyond those things. That, Lord, even as Paul wrote to the Colossians, don't set your mind on earthly things, but set your mind on things above where Christ is. Lord, knowing that everything you allow us to walk through in this life, everything that comes to us, everything, Lord, whether uh, good or trying or it be a blessing to us, God, everything is an opportunity to bring glory and honor to your name. Father, I pray that you would help us to live with a sense that we are a people created for something greater than ourselves. That our lives that are gifts from God, Lord, are gifts that were ordained by God for something greater than what we can see and comprehend. I pray, God, that we would begin to seek Lord, even as Abraham did, to be able to see by faith, God, beyond our own lives, beyond ourselves, beyond our current circumstances, and to understand that you are the God of all creation. Lord, what you are doing doesn't just span our lives, it spans eternity, and we are a part of that. And I pray, God, that you would give us a sense of wonder and amazement of what you have done in saving us and making us your very own, of redeeming us and raising us up, Lord, from the ash heap, so to speak, and making us, Father God, your children, and by your Spirit, conforming us to your glorious image. Lord, we ask that you would continue to do your work of molding and shaping and conforming us. That we would be a people, personally, individually, and corporately, conformed greater and greater, in greater measure to the Son of God. That our lives would bring glory and honor to your name. That the world would look at the church and see the glory of God, and not the shame of man. We thank you, Lord, for that. Bless your people, God. Bless them and help them to be people of faith, Lord, that would not despair and be fearful, but that would look to you in hope, knowing that you have already overcome, and you've told us in this world we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And we thank you that you have We rejoice in that. We rejoice in your victory and the victory that we have in you. We thank you for that, Father. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said.